0: I would start by saying that time is far from an irrelevant factor in criminal systems of law, including the criminal system before the ICTY. Rather, it is a fundamental dimension in both substantive criminal law and criminal procedure. Time is relevant in substantive criminal law, for example, when it comes to the identification of the law applicable to a certain crime among the different frameworks in force between the tempus commissi delicti and the time the trial takes place so it's very much relevant for the application of the principle nullum crimen sine legion. at the criminal procedure level times comes into consideration in the framework of two principles on the face of it contradictory but actually complementary that is, the principle of expeditious trial on one hand, and the accused's right to be provided with adequate time to prepare his defense as an expression of the fair trial principle on the other hand. There is, however, one more crucial and unique feature in the relationship between the ad hoc international criminal tribunals and the consideration of time. These tribunals were envisaged at their origin as judicial institutions with an expiration date. An expiration date identified not precisely or directly, but through an indirect reference to the completion of their mandate. For these tribunals, therefore, time is ticking. As is well known, the ICTY Was established by the Security Council under Chapter 7 of the United Nations Charter as an ad hoc and subsidiary organ of the Council in order to halt and redress serious violations of international humanitarian law committed in the former Yugoslavia since 1991, which had been deemed by the Security Council to constitute a threat to international peace and security. By bringing to justice the individuals responsible for these crimes, the tribunal was intended to contribute to the restoration and maintenance of peace in the region. From the moment of its creation, it was understood that the ICTY would not be a permanent institution and would eventually close. According to the Secretary General's report presenting the draft statute of the ICTY to the Security Council, I quote, the lifespan of the International Tribunal would be linked to the restoration of and maintenance of international peace and security in the territory of the former Yugoslavia and to Security Council decisions related thereto." End of quote. It is not surprising that the tribunal itself took note of the position of the Secretary General and devised its own completion strategy. In part, the concept of a completion strategy devised by judges of the tribunal already in 2000 was a result of the need to ensure fair and expeditious trials for all the accused. Undoubtedly, however, it was also developed because the tribunal perceived that the emergency situation which had sparked the need for an international jurisdiction was slowly normalizing and that the national jurisdictions would progressively be ready to take over the helm. At the time, the estimate was that if the pace of the Tribunal's work was maintained, all trials would not be disposed of before the year 2016. And then, of course, there would have been appeals. Having identified the problem, the Tribunal creatively developed practical solutions to reach the intended result. The Security Council welcomed the input received from the Tribunal, and in 2003, with Security Council Resolution 1503, called on the ICTY and on the ICTR, the Tribunal for Rwanda, to take all possible measures to complete investigations by the end of 2004, to complete all trial activities at first instance by the end of 2008, and to complete all work in 2010. It did not, however, require that any specific objective must be reached by those dates. In other words, it clearly set these dates as target dates, not as deadlines. Later, in 2004, Resolution 1534 reiterated that Resolution 1503 called, but did not mandate, the ICTY and the ICTR to complete all work in 2010 and urged each tribunal to plan and act accordingly. Since then, the presidents of the ICTY and the ICTR have been regularly informing the Security Council on the progress made with the respective completion strategies and on the measures undertaken affecting this regard. It is assumed, of course, that a strict application of the target dates for the completion strategy must not result in impunity or in proceedings that do not meet the high standards of due process to which the tribunals adhere. It is by now a commonly shared view that the legacy of the ICTY will be measured not only by whether it succeeds in judging those responsible for the most serious crimes falling within its jurisdiction, but also by whether it does so in accordance with the strictest standards of fairness. But what does the completion strategy consist of? At the ICTY, this question can be answered with four separate, yet interrelated, points. First, the completion strategy implied a rethinking of the meaning of the notions of primacy and complementarity with reference to the jurisdiction of the ad hoc international criminal tribunals. Second, it resulted in significant amendments to the rules of procedure in order to ensure the tribunal's ability to carry out It's mandate at full speed. Third, the completion strategy included a commitment by the ICTY to build its legacy in the region of the former Yugoslavia through partnership and cooperation. And fourth, it encompassed measures to guarantee that even after the tribunal is closed, it will be possible for some residual functions to be carried out. Let me come to the first of these points. Article 9 of the ICTY statutes stipulates that the tribunal has primacy over national courts. That said, it is clear that primacy does not actually mean a lack of complementarity. While the Security Council was not explicit on this point when it established the ICTY as an ad hoc institution, It was clear from the beginning that the ICTY was intended to implement the principle of complementarity in practice, since it was meant to try only a small number of cases under its jurisdiction. The tribunal was never intended to act indefinitely as a substitute for national courts in the region, which have an essential role to play in ensuring that justice is served, reconciliation is promoted, and closure is brought to the families and victims of the war. In this sense, the completion strategy is actually a way of implementing complementarity in its truest form and meaning. The prosecution of war crimes, crimes against humanity and genocide, has undoubtedly been a hallmark of the two past decades. It has been pursued through a number of UN-sponsored mixed or hybrid courts. The founding of the Permanent International Criminal Court as well as the two UN international ad hoc tribunals. One should never lose sight, however, of the fact that the implementation of international law is a task essentially for States. States make the rules of international law. Most international law rules are addressed to States. And finally, States implement international law within their own jurisdictions and play a pivotal role in demonstrating through their conduct that international law is effective. It is only when domestic jurisdictions are unable or unwilling to uphold the standards imposed by international law, that the international community may may take matters into its own hands. In these exceptional situations, the international community may attempt to make international law work uh, directly, at least to a certain extent, without the mediation of state authorities. When this happens, it is an exceptional event and should be treated as such. The establishment of the ad hoc tribunals is a prime example of such an exceptional situation. The UN Security Council, in order to fulfill its mandate to maintain peace and security, decided that in the circumstances prevailing in the former Yugoslavia and in Rwanda, The principle of complementarity could only work through a carefully balanced exercise of primacy by two international judicial bodies, the ICTY and the ICTR, but without affecting the ordinary course of affairs. That is, without upsetting the principle that domestic jurisdictions are to deal with violations of international law. In other words, while in the case of the International Criminal Court, complementarity must be ascertained for each and every case, for the ICTY and the ICTR, the Security Council made that determination ex ante for entire time frames and geographical areas, whilst maintaining prosecutorial and judicial discretion. In this respect, it is of interest to recall that while the ICTY has indicted 161 persons in total, and no more indictments are expected today, at the same time today, before the courts of Bosnia and Herzegovina alone, there are thousands of war crimes cases pending or under investigation. Consistent with this perspective, one of the cornerstones of the completion strategy was the idea that the resources of the tribunal, and above all, the time at its disposal, should be used to focus only on the most serious crimes committed in the territory of the former Yugoslavia during the period under the jurisdiction of the ICTY. Nothing new, Neil Sub one could say, considering that a reference to the most serious violations of international humanitarian law is included in Article 1 of the ICTY statutes. However, there were actually two crucial elements of novelty in this first aspect of the completion strategy. First of all, it was suggested that the threshold for selecting cases to be judged before the ICTY should be raised in order to reduce the number of cases to be dealt with at the international level. A new standard was thus defined with the Security Council Resolution 1534, which endorsed the tribunal's suggestions, as I have just mentioned. The newly defined standard focuses not only on the objective ground of the seriousness of the offenses alleged, but also expressly on the subjective degree of responsibility of the suspected perpetrator. Security Council Resolution 1534, notably, reads that the ICTY should concentrate on the most senior leaders suspected of being most responsible for crimes within its jurisdiction. Resolution 1534, also exposes the rationale underlying the redefinition of the tribunal's competence. When an option exists, international jurisdictions should preferably focus on high-level cases, which are, among other things, more tainted with political considerations that make them difficult to try at the domestic level. Coming to the second anticipated element of novelty, a number of measures were envisaged and undertaken in order to ensure that all challenges resulting from the newly established standard could be smoothly managed. The operative problem concerned those cases which were for years investigated by the ICTY Office of the Prosecutor but which fell short of the tribunal's new higher standard. And there are two types of cases. In cases where the ICTY had not yet issued an indictment, the tribunal has transferred investigative materials collected by the Office of the Prosecutor to prosecutorial authorities in the region for review and further investigation and action. With regard to cases where indictments had already been issued by the tribunal, the key provision under which the problem was addressed was a new rule of the Rules of Procedure and Evidence, uh, that is, uh, Rule 11bis of the Rules. That rule provides that after an indictment, um, after the confirmation of the indictment, but prior to the commencement of trial, a referral bench composed of three permanent judges may determine after hearing the parties that a case should be referred to the authorities of a state in which the crimes were committed or in which the accused was arrested or which has jurisdiction and is willing and adequately prepared to accept such a case. An order for referral of the accused may be made by a trial chamber, proprio motu, or at the request of the prosecutor. In order for a referral to be granted, the judges must be satisfied that the accused will receive a fair trial and that the death penalty will not be imposed or carried out. The decision of the referral bench may be appealed as of right before the Appeals chamber of the tribunal. Further, even after a case has been referred to a national court and before the conviction or acquittal of the accused, the bench can again, upon request of the prosecution or motu proprio, revoke the referral order and formally request the deferral of the case from the authority of the state to which the case has been transferred if principles of fair trial are not respected before that national court. Today, the Referral Bench has granted six referrals involving 11 accused, of which nine have been uh, transferred to the Special War Crime Chamber of Bosnia and Herzegovina, two to the authorities of Croatia, and one to Serbian authorities. I would note, uh, lastly, that the referral of cases pursuant to rule 11b of the ICTY rules uh, may be made also to states beyond the former Yugoslavia through the exercise of universal uh, jurisdiction. Thus, the ad hoc tribunals, that applies also to the ICTR, may also refer cases to states having jurisdiction and being willing and adequately prepared to accept them. The need to do so did not arise before the ICTY so far, but arose particularly in the case of the ICTR, as the requirements provided in Rule 11bis have prevented, up until now, the referral of cases to Rwanda. First, because in Rwanda there was death penalty, but after the Death penalty was abolished in that country because of some uh, uh, judicial guarantees appeared to the judges of the ICTR and the appeal chamber not fully met by the um, judiciary in that uh, uh, in that country. The situation may change, but for the time being, that was uh, the decision. Um, referral, as I said, Uh, has been granted only upon being satisfied that there were appropriate provisions to address uh, address each of the criminal acts of the accused alleged in the indictment and that uh, there was an adequate penalty structure. Thus, uh, and this is an interesting point, uh, referral is assumed to be possible only when the state will charge for those international crimes listed in the tribunal statute, that is, as serious violations of international humanitarian law. The fact that these same facts are charged in national legislation as ordinary crimes would not suffice, since the stigma attaching to the crimes under the tribunal statute would not be adequately considered. In that respect, the ICTR ICTR Appeals Chamber, which is composed of the same judges as the ICTY Appeals Chamber, upheld, for instance, the decision of a trial chamber of the ICTR that a case could not be referred under the principle of universal jurisdiction um, to Norway since this state did not have legislation to prosecute and punish genocide. For similar reasons, the chamber decided to revoke the subsequent referral of the same case to the Netherlands. Uh, This explains that uh, sometimes uh, states, uh, although they accept international standards, although they accept international instruments, are, uh, as I can say, lazy in uh, implementing Um, adopting and implementing legislation inside the country to um, give effect to the uh, treaties. But let me come to the second element of the completion strategy um, which uh, relates uh, to the impact of the strategy on criminal procedure. Um, I wish to recall that initially the common law adversarial model dominated most aspects of the tribunal's procedure. One of the most noted weaknesses of the adversarial model, however, is its tendency towards lengthy proceedings. This tendency results from the requirement that all evidence be scrutinized orally through examination and cross-examination. The problem of length is exacerbated in international criminal trials, which deal with complex crimes, taking place in complicated historical and political fact patterns and involving hundreds of people from victims and perpetrators. To a large extent, the evolutionary process of the ICTY procedures has been driven by the need to avoid these excessively long proceedings. Facing the challenge of ensuring the expeditious disposition of cases, without, of course, sacrificing the due process rights of the accused, the tribunal has adopted innovative procedures over the years in order to adapt to the specific requirements of international trials. For example, aware that the length of trials the tribunal begins with the breadth of the indictments prepared by the Office of the Prosecutor The judges adopted in 2006 an amendment to Rule 73, bis of the Rules of Procedure and Evidence, which was felt particularly necessary to ensure respect for an accused's right to a fair and expeditious trial and to prevent unduly lengthy periods of pretrial detention. The new rule, as amended in 2006, and clarified by the case law, provides that the trial chamber, in the interest of producing a fair and expeditious trial, has four options for direct or indirect action in reducing the scope of the indictment. First, it can invite the prosecutor to reduce the number of counts charged. Second, it can fix the number of crime sites to be examined. Third, it can fix the number of incidents to be considered. And finally, it can direct the prosecution to select the counts upon which to proceed. Practice can reduce the number of counts um, directly imposing on the prosecution to um, proceed on a, a narrower indictment. This new rule represents the final outcome of a series of measures introduced over time in the rules in order to reduce the size of uh, cases. And that uh, goes back to uh, 1998, where the tribunal uh, adopted a rule uh, to uh, reduce the number of witnesses to be heard in a specific incident. Uh, Later on, uh, there were There were uh, rules inviting to uh, the prosecution to reduce uh, the cases and we came uh, step by step to the current uh, rules we have uh, we have now, but there are other examples that were adopted that go more to the question of dealing with the common law and civil law traditions um, As I said, uh, the the rules uh, under the common law perspective uh, say that witnesses shall in principle be heard directly by the chambers. But uh, uh, the desire to expedite the trials led progressively to an increasing broad admission of written testimonies. Um, In in 2000, uh, the general provision was deleted and replaced by a general different provision, stating that a chamber may receive evidence of a witness orally or where in the interest of justice in written form. In addition, another disposition was introduced, which allows written witness statements to be admitted as long as they do not go to the acts and conduct of the accused. This rule addresses the situation of an accused charged with crimes which were not committed by him as a direct perpetrator, but rather by others under his control. And the provision, of course, assumes a special meaning in light of the substantive features of international criminal law where there is a distinction between the so-called crime base and the so-called mode of liability. Where um, uh, there are relevant historical, political, or military background to be examined, or uh, statistic and uh, demographic surveys to be brought into a, a, a proceedings. Uh, a further decisive step towards an increased use of written evidence has been made in 2006, <clears throat> with the adoption of two new rules, which, under certain conditions, allow a trial chamber to consider written statements and transcripts of witnesses They go even to proof of the acts and conduct of the accused in lieu of oral testimony. And they allow written statement and transcript of witnesses They go to the acts, ext- and again, to the acts and conduct of the accused to be introduced into evidence when a witness is unavailable. As a result of this evolution, the ICTY procedure is now regarded as a completely sui generis experience. It is a combination of different features of the common law and civil law traditions in a unique hybrid fashion, unknown to any domestic jurisdiction in the world. However, a careful analysis would confirm that this blending of different traditions has not resulted in a clash, but rather in a sophisticated compromise. The ICTY rules of procedure and evidence do not do the bare minimum in amalgamating the systems, but rather attempt to capture the best of both the accusatorial and inquisitorial tradition. And this uh, achievement is largely due to the needs of the completion strategy to uh, provide for for, uh, uh, speedy trials. Uh, There is another aspect, as I said, of the completion strategy, a third constitutive element. And that's an idea I tried to disseminate in the past few years during my mandate as the president of the ICTY. At the very beginning of my mandate, I found myself wondering whether the expression completion strategy accurately described what the ICTY was actually carrying out, or whether it is rather implementing a continuation strategy, in particular, by building its legacy in the region of the former Yugoslavia through partnership and cooperation. The tribunal, in my view, has shaped its completion strategy and progressively has done more in this sense in a way which could rather more aptly be described as a strategy of continued legacy building. Contrary to the common perception, the completion strategy is not limited to winding down the tribunal's operative jurisdictional functions. It is meant to be much more than that. Indeed, it is a comprehensive strategy aimed at restoring the original idea of the Security Council when it established the ICTY. That is, that the tribunal would have primacy for a short period uh, because of the inability of the local jurisdictions to deliver justice uh, in, uh, in the region. More specifically, the completion strategy is meant to be faithful to the basis of the ICTY as an instrument under Chapter 7 of the UN Charter, that is, its basis as an instrument for the restoration and maintenance of peace in the Balkans. As the maintenance of peace in the region cannot be realized without an efficient judicial system capable of bringing criminals of war to justice and justice to victims, the ICTY is necessarily called to contribute to and to ensure the efficiency of the national judiciaries prior to declaring the completion of its mandate. Consistent with this idea, in addition to the referral of cases and the transfer of investigative materials, the tribunal has also been proactively involved in efforts to foster interplay between its work and the work of judiciaries in the former Yugoslavia. Let me mention only one special type of cooperation with domestic courts operating in the region of the former Yugoslavia, that we enacted recently. Um, we adopted and amended rule 75 of the rules which allows direct petitions from other judicial authorities for access to protected materials in the possession of the tribunal, as well as from parties in proceedings in those jurisdictions. Uh, on account of the importance of that uh, procedure, especially in Bosnia and Herzegovina, the tribunal has uh, appointed a specialized chamber to deal with requests of judicial assistance from local tribunals. For the first time, a mechanism has been envisaged in order to ensure an effective and efficient cooperation between national and international jurisdiction in the opposite direction from the usual one. In other words, for once, national authorities are actually in a position to request and obtain assistance from an international jurisdiction rather than the vice versa, as it was at the, uh, at the beginning. Um, and that's because the tribunal recognizes that strengthening the channels of communication between the local judiciaries in the Balkans and the tribunal so as to facilitate transfer of knowledge, experience, and relevant material accumulated over the course of the tribunal's mandate is essential to the development of the rule of law in the former uh, Yugoslavia. Um, let me mention in this respect that, uh, uh, in order to ensure this legacy, the, with the assistance of another United Nations agency, the uh, Agency for uh, Interregional Crime and Justice Research Institute, the UNICRI, a manual is now available identifying and addressing the challenges that judges, prosecutors, and defense counsel face in the conduct of war crimes cases. We just issued a manual on developed practices of the tribunal that compiles the expertise of the tribunal on all aspects of the proceedings from investigation to the enforcement of sentences. And this uh, book that has appeared uh, published by Unicree Uh, also in the language of the region of the former Yugoslavia um, uh, takes note of the lessons learned the practices developed and the problems overcome by uh, the tribunal and it's aimed as being a tool for domestic jurisdictions to deal with war uh, war crime cases the last point of the Completion Strategy I wanted to briefly address concerns the residual, sorry, the residual judicial functions of the tribunal. Judicial institutions are not factories. The production of a judicial institutions cannot be stopped from day to day. Normally, judicial institutions do not close down. Rather, they generally survive, even the decline of states to which they belong, continuing their previous functions within the newly established judicial system. The challenges faced by the ad hoc tribunals are therefore, from this point of view, quite unique. For several years now, the tribunal has focused its attention on the mechanisms that will have to remain in place in order to dispose of residual issues once the tribunal completes all trials and appeals on its docket. I should emphasize that decisions on the legacy of the tribunal are decisions to be taken by the Security Council through an ad hoc working group established there. But the tribunal has given and is giving its contribution to identify the activities to be, and the actions to be taken and ensure that sufficient residual mechanisms remain in place for a number of activities. Let me mention briefly some of the most important ones. <clears throat> uh, the major residual issue, I hope, will not exist but maybe the trial of fugitives, if they are not apprehended before the closure of the tribunal, provided it is considered that domestic jurisdictions in the region are not yet ready to handle such delicate proceedings of high-level accused. In this respect, one can envisage a downsized tribunal with the authority and capacity to request and arrange the arrest and transfer of the fugitives the detention, fair prosecution, and uh, trial, and the supervision of the enforcement of sentences. The responsibility of such a body would include uh, work in outreach programs on these proceedings with communities in the region, of course. But apart from the trials of the remaining fugitives, if any, the tribunal needs to maintain a capacity to review judgments. According to our rules, where a new fact is discovered, which was not known to the defense at the time of the proceedings, and could not have been discovered through the exercise of due diligence, the defense may at any time make a request to review. Where such requests pass a prima facie examination, cases might be reopened on one or more of the relevant counts. The review mechanism is common to most of the world's criminal law systems. It cannot be renounced merely at the cost of making the principle of finality prevail over the interest of justice. Therefore, the tribunal needs to provide for a mechanism to ensure the possibility to review judgments into the future, should new evidence come to light. And that may happen several years after the closing of the tribunal. Um, The tribunal may need to maintain a capacity to request back cases which have been referred to domestic jurisdiction should local tribunals not act in accordance with human rights standards. It has not been the case so far, but we cannot exclude that for the future it may happen. Uh, The tribunal will also need to be able to continue proceedings for contempt in cases of unauthorized disclosure of confidential information or other breaches of binding orders. But further and more importantly, it will need to carry on its statutory function of protecting witnesses, including those to which particular protective measures have been judicially decided and uh, with measures that may require to be lifted or varied through the years, and this must be done again by a judicial body. Uh, Another essential element might be the supervision and management of prison sentences. Some accused have been sentenced to long-term period of detentions or to life imprisonment, and this will continue after the closing of the uh, tribunal. It's true that sentences are served abroad in various countries but uh, in states that have signed agreements with the tribunal. But uh, certain functions uh, of supervision remain with the tribunal, including decisions on early release of the accused. Lastly, a very large area related to residual mechanisms is the ongoing management of the tribunal's immense archives, which contain documents and evidence related to the crimes, and more generally, the conflicts in the territory of the former Yugoslavia from 91 up to, and including the short civil war in the former uh, Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia in 2001. These archives will inevitably contain both confidential and non-confidential information, which need proper supervision in light especially of possible requests for access to confidential materials to be used in judicial proceedings before other national or international jurisdictions or in light of requests for access by other persons for, as the case may be, historical or personal reasons. Let me conclude. I hope uh, to have adequately conveyed an idea of the challenges faced uh, by an ad hoc tribunal like the ICTY and of the efforts undertaken by these institutions to comply with its mission and to help the judicial institutions of the former Yugoslavia reassume their previous functions. Further, I hope to have adequately conveyed to you the idea above all of the legal challenges faced by the tribunal in this phase of its existence as well of its great achievements. Thank you.